Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Luke chapter 17. I'm going to do the first 10 verses. We're going to talk about causing stumbling blocks, setting stumbling blocks in front of the brethren, and we're going to talk about forgiveness. In the last chapter, we discussed the parable of Lazarus and Dives, where Jesus continued in his offense against the Pharisees and their ungodliness. Now, we're still probably in Perea, probably, as A.T. Robertson puts it, and I take his word for it, as Jesus heads back to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. We start with Luke 17, 1 through 3. He, Jesus, said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one they come through. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. All right, first of all, offenses. That's obvious what that is, is when you transgress somebody else's rights to moral behavior on your part. NIV puts it as things that cause people to sin. John Gill says they're temptations to sin. It's possibly a reference to Vdavis at the end of the previous chapter. Who knows whether there's supposed to be a connection or not. But Dives, remember the rich man? He caused people to sin because of his love for wealth and his unconcern for his poor, the poor man at his gate, Lazarus. So whatever it is, there's things that cause people to sin, and they're certainly going to come. Why? Because we live in a very sinful world. It is inevitable, folks. It's inevitable that there's going to be something that's going to tempt you to sin or get you angry, upset with the church because the church is made of sinners and they sin, and then that causes you to stumble, and especially if you live in America. It happens all the time. I was just talking to a young Chinese woman, newly married at about the age of 31, and she had a problem with her roommate, and she couldn't forgive her. And I was saying that in this world, there are always going to be people screwing you, and you have to learn to forgive. And she said, I can't forgive her. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, uh, and in the process of the conversation, I mentioned, I said, you know, as Christians, we can, we can do nothing to cause people to sin because it's so terrible. Because when we sin, it's not only us that we hurt, we hurt people who look up to us. And she shook her head. I was on WeChat, could see her head shaking on, on the audio, on the video there. And then I remembered, yeah, she was in Willow Creek when they had the sexual scandal with the pastor there, the guy that started the Willow Creek megachurch. And it caused her to backslide. She quit believing in Jesus. She quit praying, and her life was almost ruined. And she came back, thank God. She's a strong Christian now, but she was made to stumble because of sin on the part of Christian leaders or on the part of Christians. Now, I think that what Jesus is doing here, he's getting them ready for their ministry. He was saying, look, we're getting ready to spread the kingdom. You better keep yourself morally straight because we don't have a lot of room for error here because we're going to be persecuted. Keep yourself pure don't do things that cause these little ones, these little believers in mind, people of small, of little faith, small faith because they're young, they're immature, baby Christians, don't cause them to stumble. Don't do it. And he uses uh, an extreme example. It would be better if you had a millstone. Those things are heavy. You ever seen a millstone? I've seen several of them in museums. They're extremely heavy. You have a millstone hung around your head and thrown in the sea, you're going to sink like the proverbial rock and you're going to die. So, that's bad, so don't do it. So don't cause your little ones to stumble. So be very careful, pastors, when you're working with your secretary late at night with nobody else around and the door shut. Now, related to this is verse 3. Be on your guard, Jesus says. 
In other words, be careful not to cause your brother to stumble. Then he adds this phrase, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So he's he's saying, be on your guard for yourself. Don't cause people to stumble, but also your brother. If your brother is doing something that causes another brother to stumble, you need to rebuke him. Now, this is something we don't like to do. We don't like to get involved. We don't like to be confrontational. And most of all, we don't want to judge. You know what our society says, don't judge me. Well, rebuking somebody is a form of judgment. That irritates me when I hear that don't judge people. You have to judge people all the time. That's what church government is about. Matthew 16 and 18, if somebody sins against you, you go to him privately. That means you make a judgment that he did something wrong. Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 7, first of the chapter, he says, judge righteous judgment. Now, of course, we're not supposed to judge people with no facts. Not to judge them wrongly, of course not. But we do have to rebuke people. We need to make careful there's no beam in our eye while we take the mote out of our brother's eye. Absolutely. But we're supposed to rebuke people. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, before I get into the if he repents, forgive him. Notice the condition there, if he repents. Let's look, let's look at this millstone that might be cast around our necks. It would be butter. This was the millstone of a donkey the Greek has literally. A millstone that's turned by a donkey. And those millstones were particularly large and heavy, unlike the small millstones used by women in their homes, as the NIV Study Bible has it. In fact, they call the lower millstone an ass. A-S-S, like a donkey. So the millstone was, the big millstones were connected in the, in the public mind with donkeys. So Jesus is talking about a big millstone being thrown around your neck and sunk to the bottom of the sea. And Adam Clark and John Gill say that there's an allusion here to the drowning of malefactors that sometimes people were killed in the ancient world back then by putting millstones around the neck and drowning them. All right, now let's go to verse 4 and again, picking up on the last part of verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. And then we go to verse 4, and if he, gets, if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here we see clearly that if he repents, you forgive him. The question then arises in your mind is, what if he doesn't repent? Do I need to forgive him then? We'll look at that in just a minute. First of all, seven times in a day, he comes back to you seven times. What does the seven mean? Seven, that's a word that's deep in the Hebrew language. It's not meant to be taken literally. It means unlimited forgiveness. In other words, you don't say, well, he sinned against me eight times. I can forgive him seven times, but the eighth time, I don't need to forgive him. No, that's not what it means. Seven is the divine number, the perfect number. I'll give you some examples, and there are many of them. Psalms 119, 164, I praise you seven times a day for your righteous judgments. In other words, I praise you a divine number of times. Matthew 18, 21 through 22, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times... Could my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Again, seven is the perfect number. And Jesus said, okay, this is 70 times seven is seven times seven times ten. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Seven times seven times seven times ten. Ten is also the number of completeness, as in the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. So you got the divine number and the complete number. So completely divine number of times to forgive somebody, 
is a whole lot. There's no end to it. It's inexhaustible. This is a Hebrew idiom. We should not take it literally. Genesis 4.24, if Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. In other words, avenge him, avenge him, avenge him over and over and over again. There's no limit to the vengeance that God is talking about there. So we need to understand the language here. So Jesus is, and I'm sure what's happening is, is that when he tells his disciples to rebuke their brothers if they're sinning, he knows this is dangerous because when people start rebuking people, it can get out of hand real quick. Real quick. That's why we have law courts with judicial procedures to keep people from shooting each other when they get mad at each other and they start screaming at each other. And so he immediately guards against the over-application of the rebuking. He guards against that by saying, look, you're rebuking, but you got to forgive him too. you got to. Otherwise, you're going to cause horrible damage and division in the body of Christ. Now, let's look at this question of, is the forgiveness conditioned upon the wrongdoer's repentance? Now, these verses we read clearly say that if he repents, you must forgive him. Okay, so that's the easy case. What about when somebody sins against you and he doesn't repent? Now, that is an interesting question. I l did some look on the internet, did some research on the internet concerning this issue. I found a website by a brother named Chris Braun, B-R-A-U-N, whom I don't know about, and he said that there are many Christian authors who believe that there must be repentance before forgiveness, at least sometimes, which kind of hedges it a little bit. The authors that Brown's list are J. Adams, Ligon Duncan, John MacArthur, Ken Sandy, Justin Taylor. I know all of those, but Ken Sandy. But they're big shots, and they say, no, nah, you're going to forgive somebody, you've got to be a little bit of repentance. Now, Chris Braun apparently believes the same but he mentions the fact there are a lot of people who say, no, you should forgive people unconditionally, even if they don't repent. Well, now that's kind of interesting because I always thought you're supposed to forgive people unconditionally. Well, I had a situation where a guy swindled me out of a ton of money, a Christian brother. Not only me, but my mother and my sister. Total, con He ended up spending five years in the federal slammer for what he did. He not only robbed my family, but he robbed a bunch of other old widows' houses robbing widows houses great christian testimony here and uh, i had to forgive him for that that was a pretty big thing to forgive him of he never apologized to me not once but i forgave him i needed to i, I in fact i forgave him a lot quicker than i f forgave somebody who stole 70 rmb from me in china 70 rmb is about uh, what 12 dollars cell phone guy who didn't fix my phone properly and then didn't, didn't give me my money back it took me two years to get over that so um he did, of course, he didn't ask for forgiveness either, but I should have forgiven him. In fact, I eventually did after having to pray about it a good bit. I don't think that we need to sit around and wait for people to repent because people are pretty stupid and pretty nasty. And a lot of times they'll do things to you and they won't repent. Now, I know one time somebody had did something to me that I thought was really bad. And after a long, long time of this thing not getting resolved, I, he, I heard those magic words, I'm sorry, and immediately about a million tons lifted off of me. Those are powerful words, I'm sorry. I heard him say the same thing to another brother. I just happened to be present when he did it. And even though it wasn't me involved at that time, I said, oh, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. If you, and if you, if you call somebody to stumble, go to them and say, I'm sorry. I mean, it's not going to kill you. It's good for your pride. Now, having said that, that you're supposed to forgive people. That doesn't mean that you're supposed to have fellowship with them. That doesn't mean that you minister together with them. Remember Paul and Mark, they had a blow up. And I'm assuming Mark was the one that screwed up. 
didn't fly right. I don't know the circumstances, but I'm going to assume that. But Paul forgave him. They ended up later ministering together. But at the time, they didn't. He said, nope, go to your way. And then Barnabas and Mark went, on, went to evangelize apart from Paul. How about this? Let's say you got an ex-wife that committed adultery on you. Well, yeah, you're supposed to forgive her. What if she never asked forgiveness? And and then one day she comes around and wants to be sweet and kind to you, wants to uh, continue the relationship. Well, you, you're not under any obligation to do that. You say, I'm sorry. You know, I forgive you, but I'm not going to have anything more to do with you if that's your choice. So I think we have to be careful about this and not go to extremes. Forgiveness means a hard attitude. It doesn't mean working together. It doesn't mean that you live out your life in the same way with the same relationships that you had before. That just ain't going to happen. I remember that same guy that robbed me of all that money. I get a, 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 a email from him. He had something else he wanted me to invest in. That was before they took him off to jail. I said, I can't believe this guy. And then later on, his wife sent me a Facebook message. She wanted to be my friend on Facebook. And this is after they robbed me blind. Well, I didn't feel a bit guilty. I said, nope, I'm not going to reestablish a relationship with people that do that I, because I, I hear no repentance. So repentance is very important. But I really think you need to forgive people even if they don't, if they don't ask for repentance. I think it's good for the soul. Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, why did they say that? Because Jesus just asked them to forgive everybody unconditionally, or excuse me, not unconditionally, but without limit, over and over and over again, 70 times 7. And the, and the, and the apostles said, that ain't possible. I mean, forgiving people really is hard. <laughs> this Chinese young woman I was telling you about, she just, she's really honest. That's what I like. She says, I can't forgive her. Uh-uh. That's not going to happen. Not yet. It's going to take me some time. <laughs> so... It's a hard thing to forgive people. So the apostles said to increase our faith, and the reason they said that, they wanted to have more faith to forgive. This is not my idea. This is also the idea of the NIV Study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out this is the only time in the New Testament where disciples ask of Jesus to change the state of their soul, which is kind of interesting, because we do that all the time, don't we? Take this sin out of my heart. Don't let me be irritated toward this person. Don't let me be angry toward that person. Help me love this unlovable person. We do that all the time. This is the only time where we see this in the New Testament. Now, this idea of increasing our faith is not the only time this happens in the Scripture. In Mark 9, 24, the occasion of this is when the disciples came off the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had left some disciples behind. Some people brought a, some man brought a demonized boy to the disciples and said, please cast the demons, the demon out or the demons out, and the disciples fail to do so. So, Jesus goes to the father of the boy, and the father of the boy says, deliver, the, cast the demon out, and Jesus, and Jesus said, uh, or can, uh, something like, can you cast it, uh, if you will, if you will, or if you can, something like, I forgot the exact words, and Jesus says, if I will, if I can, you know, believe me, of course I can, and the, and the father of the boy cried out in verse 24, Mark 9, I do believe. And then he said, help my unbelief. So you see, that verse shows that there are degrees of faith. If you don't have enough faith, nothing wrong with asking to increase it. I mean, none of us have enough faith. <laughs> the, the story of Jesus in the back of the boat, sleeping in the midst of that horrible storm, the disciples thought they were going to die. He wakes up and says, What's the, what, what, where's your, oh, you have little faith. Where's your faith? He said in one translation, where's your faith? I'm right here, so what's the problem? Well, Jesus is always right here with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he's always with us. So if things looking bad, if you can't forgive somebody, believe Jesus to help you forgive him. And if you can't, 
Ask yourself, where's your faith? Jesus expects, Jesus wants to do mighty things in the hearts of his believers, but he expects you to believe for him to do it and not we ourselves. Luke chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus responds to the request to increase the apostles' faith. To, the, to their request, he responds this way. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. First of all, the mustard seed, that was the smallest seed known to Israel. It's not the smallest seed in the world. People, in another place, Jesus said, the mustard seed is the smallest seed. And people say, see there, Jesus made a mistake. The Bible's got errors in it. No, he was speaking according uh, according to the environs of Judah. That was the smallest seed there. And so Jesus uses that as his metaphor. It's a little tiny, 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 tiny seed. All you have to have is a little bit of, a little bit of faith. And you can do big things with that little bit of faith. You can say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Now, of course, that is not meant to be taken literally. It is Hebrew hyperbole. And his point is, is whatever God needs to do for you spiritually, he'll do for you if you have a little tiny bit of faith. Now, if you have a lot of faith, he can do even bigger things. He can uproot two mulberry trees and put them in the sea. A uh, similar passage, not parallel, Matthew 17:20. Because of your little faith, he told them, for I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, that's Hebrew hyperbole. I used to read that and think, oh, my goodness, I should be able to lift the mountain up and drop it into the sea. And that always seemed a little bit strange, a little bit impossible. Well, it's, it's not meant to be taken literally. It just means that God, whatever he wants to do in your life, according to his plan, according to his will, according to his purpose, in order to bless you, in order to, to strip the flesh out of you, and to get the world out of you, and to get your mind thinking spiritual thoughts and letting your eye be single on Jesus and not on the world, and the flesh, and the devil, anything he'll do, if you just believe him, he'll deliver you from whatever circumstances they are. And believe me, in this world, there are plenty of really nasty circumstances. So we need to have faith. Mark 11:23. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. You notice that the, there's no doubt in his heart. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And by the way, you can focus on the says to the mountain, and you can... And you cannot focus on the doubt in the heart, and, and you end up in magic. You end up in the hyperfaith message, Copenhagenism. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, I just said the right formula, be moved. And it's going to happen because I said it. I said it. My confession is accurate. I don't say anything negative. Well, first of all, there's a million places in the Bible where people say things negative and God still responds. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is there's got to be no doubt in your heart, which means that Jesus has got to have spoken to you first about picking that mountain up and throwing it into the sea. And which, again, is hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken literally. And, and I doubt if Jesus tells everybody, oh, you need to have a Mercedes Benz. You need to have a Rolls Royce. You need to have a jet airplane. So believe in your heart. Speak to it. Speak it into existence. The things which are not. Speak as though they are. And all this hyper-faith, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it. Confess it and possess it. Scream it and redeem it. Nonsense. So that's a perversion. The faith message is a perversion. However, the scripture is true, and we can't throw the we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to believe. We need to talk our belief, and we need to not doubt in our heart. But don't get around trying to, to manipulate God by what you say. It's He puts it in your heart first, and then you believe in Him, and you don't doubt it, and then you walk confidently after that. 
Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus continues, Which one of you, having a slave tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, Prepare something for me to eat, get ready, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you can eat and drink. Does he thank that slave because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, We are good-for-nothing slaves. We have only done our duty. That good-for-nothing slaves is the home of Christian study Bible. The NIV has unworthy slaves. We've only done our duty. Now, Jesus is probably trying to keep his disciples humble here. You know, they had done a lot of miraculous works. And they're going to be in charge of a lot of spiritual stuff as they set up the church. And that might make people proud, as, you know, typically that does. It's real hard for people who are big shots in ministry to be humble. They have to ask Jesus to work on them with that. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, you do your work. Don't expect people to to praise you. Don't expect God to say, oh, good boy. You're just doing what you were commanded as a slave. We're Jesus' slave, so let's just do it and be happy that we're serving the master. But don't expect a lot of reward and honor and what a good boy you are and all that kind of stuff. What a good girl you are. And don't do that. Just do your duty and expect nothing. Jesus will exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourself before the Lord and God, and Jesus will exalt you, or God will exalt you at the proper time. You don't need to be exalted. God will exalt you. But don't expect, don't expect anything beyond that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17. Jesus is preparing his disciples in his Perean ministry as he's getting near the end there, and he's trying to prepare them for what it's like to minister in the kingdom after he has been crucified and died and gone to heaven. Next audio, we will... We will look at some more ministry in Perea, including the healing of some leprous people. And we'll see you in the next audio. If you enjoyed this one.